Uh, or rather, would you uh, open with me in a word of prayer as we begin this morning? Heavenly Father, we again thank you for all the great blessings with which you've blessed us. I, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to me, Lord. I thank you for the faithfulness that you've shown to all of us, Lord. I thank you that when we open up your word, you are faithful to speak to us, Lord. And so I pray that you would continue to do so by speaking directly to you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move today, that you would continue to convict our hearts, that you would help us to be molded more into the image of Christ, Lord. And so we thank you, and we love you, and we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This past week, entertainment news headlines have been filled with details of the latest infidelity in Hollywood. Kristen Stewart, star of the Twilight series, admitted to cheating on boyfriend and co-star Robert Pattinson with film director of her latest film, Snow White and the Huntsman. The director, Rupert Sanders, had been, has been married to his wife, Liberty Ross, for 10 years, and they have two children together. But the story has been all about Kristen Stewart and how she betrayed Robert Pattinson. All over the internet, people were buzzing about the affair and Kristen Stewart's public apology to Robert. In the apology, Stewart expressed that she was sorry for the hurt and the embarrassment she caused. She wrote, This momentary indiscretion has jeopardized the most important thing in my life, the person I love. I haven't watched Twilight, nor do I really know much about Kristen Stewart or Robert, but I don't pretend, and I don't pretend to know her intentions or emotion behind these words. But anytime someone uses the phrase momentary indiscretion to describe an action that will probably break a marriage and negatively impact the life of two children, I wonder why those words were chosen. Why use a phrase that is synonymous with a brief lapse of judgment or a thoughtless mistake? Why is it that whenever our wrong deeds are found out, our tendency is to minimize the significance of our actions? What kind of words would we use to describe our sin if we were found out? How would we respond if our secret sins were out in front of all to see? How should we respond? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what you would do if your sins were found out? Have you ever considered what you would do if they were laid out before you? Think for a moment about the last time you committed a sin. What did you do after you committed it? Did you ignore it or brush it aside? Did you fixate on it and become consumed with guilt? These are the questions I want us to think about today. Specifically, what do we do when we are confronted by our sin? What do we do when the things that we've done wrong are before us and we can't hide from the guilt anymore? That's the reality which led to the writing of Psalm 51. 
David, the king of Israel, wrote these words after he could no longer hide from his sin. And by examining his words, we will find out what to do when our sin is before us and we can't hide from it anymore. Look with me at Psalm 51 as I read the words that David wrote again. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, with, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would have given it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When we left David last week, he had just been confronted by Nathan the prophet. If we remember, we read in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 how David sinned against God. David saw Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and desired her. He sent for her and slept with her. When she became pregnant, he sent for Uriah so that he could cover up his sins by convincing Uriah to sleep with his wife. Twice, David tried to get Uriah into his wife's bed, but failed. He sent Uriah back to the war so that he might face his death. He sent him with specific instructions detailing Uriah's own demise for Joab, the commander of the armies of Israel. Joab was to put Uriah at the front of the army where the fighting was heaviest and leave him there to be surrounded and killed by the enemy. The plan was put into action and it succeeded. During the battle, Uriah was placed in the front lines and he and several other innocent men were killed on account of David's secret. And throughout the narrative, we watched 
in disbelief as the king of Israel, the man who was once known as a man after God's own heart, stood emotionless and disregarded the lives of innocent men. But while David committed those atrocities without hardly a second thought, God saw what David was doing. And the Bible says that David's actions were evil in his sight. So God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David of his sin. And Nathan arrived and told David an imaginary story about a rich man who stole from a poor man. In the story, the rich man was a man of great resource who had many flocks of sheep at his disposal. But when a guest arrived, he took not from his own resource, but from the poor man who had only one sheep whom he loved. This story of injustice infuriated David, and he demanded retribution against this man. But Nathan looked into the eyes of David and said, You are that man. You have sinned against God, and now he will judge you for it. And you and your family will face great consequences because of it. David was guilty. He was, built, he was guilty before God and he knew it. Despite his scheming attempts to cover his tracks, the Lord saw his actions and more importantly, his heart. And David had no excuse. He responded to Nathan, I have sinned against God. I can imagine later that night, Nathan left the king's presence. Over and over, Nathan's words rang in David's head, You are that man. And the shame continued to pour over him. He replayed in his mind his actions and watched like a movie he had already seen but couldn't turn off. Each scene that played made him more angry and humiliated. He opened his mouth to speak to God, but the words never came as he choked back tears. So unable to mouth his emotion, he began to write. And he wrote what we have here as Psalm 51, his prayer to God. Follow along again as I read just the opening words of David's prayer. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you, before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. As David writes in Psalm 51, it is apparent that he, is, that he knows that he is guilty and has sinned against God. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David knows what he has done. He understands that his actions and the attitudes of his heart are not simply mistakes or momentary indiscretions. Rather, these actions and attitudes are transgressions committed purposefully and willfully. His choice of words is significant here. Because to transgress means that he has broken his covenant relationship with God. 
It means that he has rebelled against God to whom he was to remain loyal. The relationship God has with his people is of a covenant nature, meaning that his people are to be devoted to him. That is why the imagery of a marriage comparing our relationship with God is so significant. When we sin, we betray our heavenly marriage with God. Imagine if you were married and you betrayed your relationship by being unfaithful. The pain that you would have caused could very well strain your relationship and your spouse so much that it might be unrepairable. At its core, this is the disloyalty we have for God when we sin against Him. David laments because he has been unfaithful to God in his relationship with Him. Using a poetic device, David writes a parallel statement to intensify his offense. He says, my sin is ever before me. Not only does he know that he has rebelled against God, he is reminded again and again that he has sinned. His guilt nags at him and hounds him and he cannot have peace. To sin refers to missing the mark or standard. David says that his failure to measure to God's holy standard is before him continually. He imagines this reality as a hindrance or stumbling block in front of him. It sits ever before him as a reminder that he is guilty. Wherever he turns, it is there. He cannot hide from it, but no matter where he goes, it follows him and stands in the way of moving on. Not only is David aware that he has failed, David confesses that it is against God and God alone that he has sinned. Think about that for a moment. Throughout 2 Samuel chapter 11, there were many people whom we may say have, were sinned against by David. David sinned against Bathsheba when he lusted after her. David sinned against Uriah when he took his wife and killed him. And David sinned against the people of Israel when he jeopardized their safety by sacrificing their lives in the fight against the, the enemy. Yet David says that it was against God alone that he sinned. It is not that David is insensitive to the fact that he has sinned greatly against many people. Rather, David is confessing that even greater than those sins was his offense against God. David's greatest fault was not that he lusted after Bathsheba or that he murdered Uriah and the other men. David's greatest failure was that he disregarded God and his gifts, which led him to continue down a path of sin and consequence. David writes, against God and only God have I sinned. I have broken my loyalty with God. I have fallen short of his holy standard. And against God, I have done what is evil. What makes David's sin and any other sin against God so significant is the matter of his holiness. God's holiness determines that no sin against God can be considered insignificant. He is holy. Think back through the Old Testament and the various instances where God's holiness is mentioned. 
Think back to the temple of God, where the innermost part of the temple was considered the most holy place in Israel. It was so holy and separated from everything else that it was covered with a veil, and only once could a man enter it. And even when he entered it, if by chance he died there, no one could enter to retrieve his body. Rather, they had to pull him from the rope that was tied to his ankle because the place was holy. Think back to when David and the people of Israel carried the Ark of the Covenant and an Israelite tried to save it from falling to the ground. And as soon as he touched it, he fell to his death. Why? Because it was an extension of God's holiness. God, because of His holiness, cannot be intertwined with, with what is impure. And since God is holy, we must remain separate from impurity and sin. Or rather, He must remain separate from impurity and sin. See, think about our signif the significance of our sins. When we sin, we become defiled. And if we are defiled, then it is not possible for us to commune with God because He is holy and separate from sin. David laments over his sin because he recognizes that because of it, he is unable to have fellowship with God. And David's next line is a bit difficult to understand in verse 6 because of our translations, but the NIV is helpful here where it says, So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David is surrendering to the realization that since he is guilty, whatever God determines as punishment is just. Whatever God decides, he has already agreed within himself that he deserves it. This is the fact that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Because of his sin, God punishes David and tells him that he and his family will receive the consequence of his sin. The son whom Bathsheba bore died. David's other children rape and murder each other. And for the rest of his life and even past his life into the lives of his children, David's consequences felt. And even beyond that, David understood that the definite penalty for his sin was death. It was what he deserved for sinning against and breaking loyalty with God. Knowing these things, David accepts that it is just. He understands that he deserves every consequence that comes as a result of his wickedness. But making his predicament worse is the fact that David has always had a problem with sin. Look as he writes in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Just like in verse 3, David presents his problem in two similar but subtly different ways. While iniquity and sin are similar in that they make up David's offense against God, iniquity brings out a small difference. Iniquity refers to the act to acts contrary to justice. In other words, it is an act similar to the act of injustice that the rich man committed against the poor man when he stole his sheep. 
David says that from the time of his birth, he has been engulfed by a propensity towards injustice. David's problem is developing into a crisis. Not only has he sinned against God, it is in his very nature to do so. And even still, he is found guilty because God deserves or desires faithfulness from man. Here again, the NIV is most helpful in, in its translation of verse 6 where it reads, Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Here the NIV makes clearer the parallelism which David uses to contrast his sin. Yet even still, God instilled the understanding of right and wrong before his birth. Even though man is born with the desire to sin, man can still be held responsible for his actions. And God, in his holiness, does just that. Therefore, David is answerable to his offense. So herein lies the problem. David is guilty of sinning against God. He has not been loyal to God and has failed to measure up to a standard. Making matters worse, sin has always plagued him and made him guilty of failing to meet God's standard of faithfulness. David is right then to say that whatever judgment comes, it is well deserved. Even if it is death, because sin is costly. But if David's problem was that he was guilty before God and that because of his sin, we too are guilty before God. Because we too struggle with present and former sins. So like David, we share in that guilt. You and I run into the same crisis in that we have sin in our lives. Like David in our wrongdoing, we have broken loyalty with God. Anytime you and I sin... No matter the magnitude or type of sin, we have been unfaithful in our relationship with God. Furthermore, when you and I commit wrongdoing, we fail to measure up to God's holy standard. In His Word, God has a standard of living, which, is, which He declares right and wrong. And when we sin, we go against His standard. We are guilty. We deserve His just punishment. It's so important for us to understand the severity of sin and not minimize its significance. We have to avoid an understanding of sin that considers some sins as larger than others. Whether we consider lying or gossip or as smaller than murder and lust, the result of any of these sins is the same. Our sin is incompatible with God's holiness. It is an affront to the holy God and we must be dealt with because of it. If we are guilty of these sins, we deserve God's punishment for them. Sin is like a contamination that can enter into our bodies. Whenever you and I go into a hospital, any good doctor will be careful to sterilize the tools that he will be using. Uh, you know, if you walk into the hospital, you watch closely, you'll see that as soon as the doctor enters into the room, he washes his hands and put gloves on before doing the procedure. 
Now would you imagine with me that on one occasion when you entered into your doctor's office, the doctor didn't wash his or her hands. And you looked at the doctor and said, why didn't you wash your hands? And the doctor responds by saying, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a little, it's a, it's just a little contamination. It won't do no harm. Would you stay there? You would get up and say, you either wash your hands or I'm leaving and getting another doctor. Right? That's what I would do. That's what you would do. And so, why then do we believe that a little contamination in our soul is harmless? Sin, no matter how big or small, is an offense to God. No matter its size, it is costly. And the punishment is just. As I've reflected on this passage, I notice that I have a terrible tendency in my life. And that tendency is to pass too quickly from the seriousness of sin to the reality of grace in my life. I've noticed that I have traded the practice of honest confession of sin for quick apologies to God because intellectually, I know that God is able to forgive. And so I have gotten into the habit of repeating empty words rather than actually feeling the sorrow for offending the Lord and breaking loyalty with God. Of course, we can find grace in God, but that does not mean that we can sin and move on carelessly without confession and sorrow. As Paul asked in his letter to the Romans, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. The grace of God does not remove the necessity to feel sorrow, confess, and repent of our sins. It's what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, godly grief. You see, godly grief leads to repentance. When we become grieved by our sin against God, it leads us to change. Sorrow over sin moves us to confess our sin and turn from our ways. We shouldn't diminish, diminish the shame that we feel when we sin. Rather, we should reflect upon it and confess our sin to God. And David realized that he had a serious problem. He was guilty of sin against his holy God and he knew that he was in need of deep help. He had committed, committed evil acts that flew in the face of God's holiness. And to make matters worse, he had been born with the inclination to do so. So what would he do? What could he do when he knew his actions had created a wedge between him and God and made him guilty of sin and punishment? What then are we to do with our problems? What kind of solution is there for us who share in David's problem and find ourselves guilty? Look with me at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Like a leper, David is unclean and begs to be made pure. Because of his sin, David imagines himself standing outside of the city waiting to be cleansed so that he can enter into the Lord's presence. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The language that David uses is borrowed from the Torah and the Lord's instructions for leprous people. Lepers were unclean and had to remain outside of the camp until they were verifiably healed. Even still, it wasn't until the leper was purged of their iniquities, or rather their impurities, with the blood of a sacrificed animal and sprinkled with its blood that they were considered pure. The priest would use a staff and would tie hyssop around it to sprinkle that individual. Then and only then could that person return cleansed from impurity. David's sin is like the leprous spots condemning David to remain outside of God's presence. And so he begs, pleading to be washed and declared clean so that he might be able to come before his holy God. Just like the leper whose body had seen the adverse effects of his illness, David longs for the day when his body could rejoice in its spiritual healing. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. But even if he is cleansed, David's record is not. And if the record of his sin remains, so must his guilt David will continue in his state because his offense against God will be continually before him, blocking him from communion with God. And so, like a man imprisoned for his crime, David begs to be forgiven. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Turn your justice away from me. Let your righteousness pass over me. See, God had every right to refuse David's request. David had no grounds for which to be exonerated because he was, in fact, guilty. Yet David appeals to God's mercy. But to be cleansed and forgiven was not to enjoy the relationship David once had with God. Even if he was cleansed and forgiven, David would, rem would remember how he used to desire God. And how he always followed after him when he led. So like a man in need of being made new, David begs to be restored. Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. David remembered that his problem was not simply his recent sin against God. His problem was a crisis that originated at his birth with a proclivity to sin against God. The only resolution would be to be made new with a clean heart and a spirit that yearned to please God. David remembered what happened to his predecessor Saul. It was not that long ago when Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit only to be emptied of God's presence because of his sin. David didn't want to follow in Saul's footsteps, and so rather he wanted to follow God's leading wherever he led onto righteous living. So he implores God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. He asks God to bring back the feeling of sweeter days when he walked with God and was sustained by his spirit. Then David vowed he would teach others to follow God. He would reach out and return others with his story of God's graciousness. If God would deliver him from his guilt and impurity, David's mouth would be full of praise. His tongue would flow with songs of God's righteousness and his lips would speak of God's love. Everyone who came within a few feet of David would know that God had done a marvelous work. David had a story to tell. David had a message for the masses. And in verse 16, he discloses the lesson that he was taught. He writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, for I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not displease. If anyone who listened to his story was wondering, God had taught David that it was brokenness over sin that was the proper response to his actions. Brokenness that led to confession of sin would in fact lead to forgiveness and restoration because God does not despise a broken and contrite heart. He is not displeased and will do all that David asked for him to do. He cleanses, he forgives, and he restores. Sin is costly, but confessed sin leads to forgiveness and restoration. Just as there is a temptation to think of sin as being small and insignificant, we can be tempted to think the opposite as well. On the other side of the spectrum are those who have committed particular sins in their lives and believe that they are unforgivable. They believe that their sin and guilt is so great that God has moved on from them. This weighs on them so that the sin is so great that it becomes unspeakable to those around them. And it has become become a buried secret within them. And for fear of being forsaken or abandoned, they have decided that they cannot tell anybody about the secret sin in their life. If this is where you find yourself this morning, 
I want you to understand that no matter how big your sin, God can forgive you. No matter how filthy you think you are, God can cleanse you. And no matter how far you've gone, God is able to restore you. Ah, but you don't know what I've done. You say, you don't know what I've done, and if I told you, you would think differently. No matter how big your sin, God is able to forgive and restore you. It doesn't matter if it was an abortion, if it was sex with someone you shouldn't have had, or if it was even taking the life of an innocent person, you are not beyond redemption. Sin is costly, yes, but confess sin leads to forgiveness and restoration. In the opening verses of this psalm, David begins by appealing to God's character. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. You see, even though we have been unfaithful to God, He remains faithful. He remains loyal to us because His love is steadfast. It is continuous and has no end. Not only that, but His mercy is abundant. It has no end either. If we were to stretch God's mercy, it would find no end. That's why the book of Ephesians describes God as being rich in mercy and with a love that overflows for us. God's love and mercy can never be exhausted. That's why David, who committed gross sin against God, had sex with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, could find forgiveness and restoration. Even David, who completely went against God's law, can be forgiven. And if David can be forgiven, so can you and I. It is not to minimize God's justice to say that He will simply close His eyes and forget all that we've done. Rather, the basis for our forgiveness is God's mercy and love which finds its expression in Jesus Christ. God's justice is not ignored, but Jesus Christ died in our place for our sin. And not just our former sin, but even the sins that we continue to commit. Through our faith in Him, by trusting in Jesus, we can confess our sin and find forgiveness and restoration. Sin is costly, but confess sin brings us forgiveness and restoration. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you, Lord, that despite all that we've done against you, that if we confess our sins and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, you will forgive us and restore us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would not leave here thinking insignificant about sin, but that we would be convicted by the fact that, the, that sin is costly and that once we confess our sin before you, we can find forgiveness and restoration. We thank you for this truth, Lord, and we pray that you would continue to guide us today. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.